vicious little prick. I'm sorry? I asked if your wife fully understood what you would be taking on here. And there's your son, of course, Daniel. Your wife isn't a bit intimidated by the idea? Wendy is an extraordinary woman. And your son is also extraordinary? We like to think so, I suppose. He's quite self-reliant for a five-year-old. Step around the desk, if you will, Mr. Torrance. We'll look at the hotel floor plans. Top floor, the attic. Absolutely nothing up there now but brick and brack. Uh, the Overlook has changed hands several times since World War II, and it seems that each successive manager has put everything they didn't want up in the attic. I want rat traps and poison baits sewed around in it. Some of the third-floor chambermaids say they have heard rustling noises. I don't believe it, not for a moment, but there mustn't be that one in a hundred chance that a single rat inhabits the Overlook Hotel. Of course, you wouldn't allow your son up in the attic under any circumstances. No. The Overlook has 110 guest quarters. 30 of them, all suites, are here on the third floor. 10 in the west wing, including the presidential suite. 10 in the center, 10 more in the east wing. All of them command magnificent views. Second floor, 40 rooms, 30 doubles and 10 singles. And on the first floor, 20 of each, plus three linen closets on each floor and a storeroom, which is at the extreme east end of the hotel on the second floor and the extreme west end on the first. Now, lobby level. Here in the center is the registration desk. Behind it are the offices, the lobby rooms for 80 feet in either direction from the desk. Over here in the west wing is the overlooked dining room and the Colorado lounge. The banquet and ballroom facilities is in the east wing. Questions? Only about the basement. For the winter caretaker, that's the most important level of all. Where the action is, so to speak. Watson will show you all of that. The basement floor plan is on the boiler room wall. Uh, might not be a bad idea to put some traps down there, too. J just a minute. Okay, back to the interview. Who are you and where are you from? People always give where they're from, don't they? I was born in Kansas. I grew up in Richland and Seattle, Washington. Then the family relocated down to Georgia and a part of the South where the South liked its South to be populated with Southerners. And there wasn't a trace of South in my family's blood. I met a Southerner who wasn't a Southerner despite the fact that his family and ancestors had never been above the Mason-Dixon line and I married him. I suppose our son is a hybrid. What do you do? I write. I've always written novels and I've had some plays produced. The way that I write is laborious and takes forever, so I also paint and do photography because I like doing them and because they, especially the, the photography, are less time intensive. It takes years for a book to be completed. Though I may work years on a series of photographs or paintings, I don't labor over a single one for five to ten years. Photographs are pretty much immediate gratification. You used to do plays? Yes, I used to write plays and had a number of them produced from my late 20s to when our son was born, when I was 40. Writing is a very isolating activity and plays were enjoyable for the reason that I was always a part of the production as a consultant and invited to be in, very involved, artistic design coaching, etc. I did a number of plays, but I was a writer of literature in the novel form first and returned to that with the birth of my son. 
Hello and welcome. I'm William Morgan, and that last bit of the interview was not Jack Torrance, but rather tonight's guest, writer and mapper of other worlds, Julie Kearns. Yes, hello, I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Wednesday night, 2-2-2, and on this evening, we're going to explore synchronicity and other worlds with Julie Kearns, author of three books, all available from lulu.com, to which we'll link. Her most recent book, The Rhetoric of Streets, published this past June, details a photographer's 15-year-long vigil for her missing sister, which wears upon her personal family and professional life, during which time she struggles with whether the disappearance was intentional. An exploration of parenthood, the artistic impulse, and the wear and tear of culturally conditioned misogyny. You may recognize Julie's voice from the movie Room 237, wherein she was one of the interviewees. It really is a treat to be hosting her tonight. How are you doing, Julie? I'm doing fine, and I'm glad you did the introduction for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I'm always tongue-tied on that. That (laughs) Well, it's funny. We talked to Rodney not long after that movie came out, and it was was really an interesting ride. But this past winter, the program, I have a book club with uh, some of the people that listen, and and we all are fans of literature, and we did Stephen King's The Shining, and it just kind of brought all this up to the surface. You know, I hadn't remembered at all that his being, uh, that being so specific. It's been so long since I've read the book. Uh, that being so specific on the layout, yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I thought it was interesting also. I mean, especially because one of the things that I remembered the most from 237 was the way that you yourself had mapped that out. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because, I mean, it, it's been a while since I've seen 237, too, and I can't remember exactly how you presented that. Well, if the thing is, is that it's... Um, no, the, yes, the exteriors don't match the interiors at all, and you've got uh, anomalies throughout the interior. But the thing is, is that Kubrick did not do that just with The Shining. He did that with other movies as well. So it's not specific to The Shining, uh, like Lolita. Uh, if you t- uh, pay attention to the interiors in Lolita, they're quite different from the exteriors. Okay, so I got a question, though. Was it The Shining yeah. that, I mean, because what you did was you basically, I mean, what was it that well, drew your attention? Out. Yeah, but why, why, though? I mean, what was it well, about that? What was it, was it The Shining that basically said, hey, something's not right here, and you started mapping it out, or? Well, because these are things that I first noticed, like, on the big screen many years ago when I, uh, you know, uh, when I first saw The Shining. You know, you're sitting there, and you're watching a bit, and you see this window uh, in the interview section, and you go, wait a minute. Uh, you realize that this, uh, you know, as you watch the movie, this window couldn't be there. Um, and uh, the fact, the way that it was shown, it, it has a kind of, in The Shining, in, uh, in The Shining, these kind of, disor- you know, uh, it, you get a kind of disorientation and uh, you get a kind of sinister air with some of uh, the things that don't match up. And you're left questioning and wondering what's going, you know, what's going on. Whereas, in, you know, something like Lolita, you don't have so much the um, a sinister quality. But at, in both films, you do have, pure, you do have um, certain things that go, 
where it feels like it's being pointed out that um, the interior doesn't match the exterior. And that's, you know, it's interesting that that happens. Do you think Stanley Kubrick mapped it out as much as you did? Well, uh, in the interior is, of course. Yeah. So you think that he planned it? He wasn't just, you know, I'll kind of like mix things up. I mean, I'm sure that he was laughing. I mean, there's a lot of things about. Ma- I'm not sure it's a matter of laughter as much as uh, something to do with um, uh, psychology and drawing the audience in, dialoguing with the audience, creating an environment for the audience. I'm not sure it's. I don't think of it so much as an inside joke. Do you think there could be different interiors for different characters, and what we see is. Uh, in t- like the psychological landscape of because like that's something that struck me when I was looking over your website, which is really interesting, by the way, is that uh, we don't ever see the three characters together anywhere except in a few places in the movie. Well, you uh, such as in the um, scene with room two, you know two thirty seven, you have three different perspectives going on there at least. You know, you have I mean I mean you have three perspectives it seems. Uh, and you don't know, if you think about it, you don't know actually who is experiencing what, uh, since, you know, they're all put together. So I, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't know. It, yeah. could, it could be, it could be that. Uh, but since if you do cross analysis, you see that it's not just in The Shining, but you have this in other films as well. And actually, like in Lolita, you'd have no idea. You're, you're led to believe that the, you know, the backyard is in the backyard, right? You're shown the house, uh, the exterior of the house. You get, the person gets a set idea of the house from seeing the exterior. You have the first floor, the second floor. You expect the living room to be right next to the entrance, and you expect the backyard to be out the back. There's not room on the side for the backyard. Um, as they go through, you know, he shows uh, he introduces you to the house uh, with Charlotte taking Humbert through the rooms and she takes him upstairs and then she takes him downstairs and they go through the living room and dining room out into the backyard. And you feel like, you know what you're seeing. You feel like you're being taken out into the backyard. Um, and then uh, in the scene uh, later, when uh, you get into where he's thinking about killing Charlotte that, uh, um, that, that particular day, you end up seeing out uh, off the second floor opposite the bathroom, as a matter of fact, you see a window which shouldn't be there. And then you realize, oh, that wipes out half the second floor. And then you go back and you take a look at the first floor again, and you realize that the living room and dining room are actually there. The, the backyard does not go off the um, into the backyard. The backyard is actually off the side of the house. You have the living room, then the dining room, and it's a side yard. So he, you have been deceived in exactly how the house is plotted. And so you have the same kind of thing happening there as you have happening in The Shining. Why he does this, I can't, you know, um, I don't well, know exactly why. Th- that's so, fascinating because for yeah. a second, I mean, seeing Room 237 for a second there, I thought that it was almost a joke because you also mentioned the Minotaur. And for a while mm-hmm. there, I, I kind of had this insight that the – the the Overlook Hotel itself is the labyrinth because like the walls are moving. You know what I mean? Like the thing is like changing shape as you're watching it. Mm-hmm. He has mazes act in a, in some way in all his films. Maze is uh, a maze is actually in there with um, the bulk of uh, novel. Uh, in fact, uh, you get the idea from one of the poems that's in there is that um, Lolita's last name because it's a fake name. Uh, the, her name is a fake name, is that it could possibly be Maze in one of the poems that's given in there that's written by Humbert. Uh, and um, 
Then when you go back to uh, Killer's Kiss, the production company is Minotaur Production Company. So he's got uh, a maze. He's got mazes that he. Ca- it's a theme he carries out throughout his films. Hmm. Wow. And so it was just the, his storytelling that really fascinated and, and captivated you. Uh, Kubrick. Yeah. I'm, I'm... Or uh, yeah, I was since we were just talking about Nabokov, I didn't know whether we, oh. yeah Kubrick, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. Well, from the first time on, I, I saw my first film what when I was what uh, t- eleven years of age. I saw two thousand and one, and it was a you know a phenomenal experience for me. I was used to film as entertainment, right? Right. Uh, Americans, Hollywood films, things like this. And then there was this big build up to two thousand and one. Um, um, my dad was a sci fi fan. And we went to see it and I was, you know, was like, this is amazing. It was, it was like, this was a different kind of film for me. It was a a different, it was an experience. It wasn't just entertainment. It wasn't, it was something uh, where you're watching it or, and you might have something emotional that draws you in. This was an experience. It was, it was a staged, it was a built experience in which they were drawn in to it. And, um, and, it, completely different, and I was fascinated. And it was, um, yeah, that was my int- first introduction to Kubrick. This season's synchronicity for me with that, and that's the kind of the fun of the book club is that we try and see why, right. why, why this book, why now, and what what does it resonate with. And so the interesting thing for me in that moment was, in the book, you have it's like a haunted mm-hmm. house kind of story, and you have what amounts to like the power structure, the patriarchy. And then within that you have a a child, a woman and a black man, and they're kind of trapped in this structure. And it just really felt like, like the kind of season that we were coming in politically speaking. I'm, I'm, um, Oh yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. In, in the movie room two, three, seven, you have, uh, this great synchronicity that you share about your son relating kind of an interior he's somehow able to communicate what you're thinking about we've had that happen all the time but uh you know i have that happen with other people it's just that with uh my son when he was young you know you don't have the filters i think people build up filters it'd be i think it'd be amazing to find out just how much synchronicity in shared thoughts or things like this there actually is but we have filters as far as what we talk about right Right. Um, and uh, so he would come in, he would start saying something. And it's a matter of, you know, phenomenology, thought arising, you know, it gets into that. It's like, what, what, why? But he would come in and he would say like something that I had been writing on, you know, uh, like uh, very intensely, perhaps. And then he would come in and he would uh, say something and he would be talking about a character of a story that he was that he was thinking of at that time, you know, something, you know, uh, you know, just a play story, and it would be like something that I was writing on, or, you know, not specifically, but the idea that I had in mind, you know, like I'm, he would bring that in, um, and so th- different things like that, or uh, movies, let's say that, uh, like, like, like uh, after he'd go to bed, I'd watch, you know, a movie late at night, he'd be in, totally in the other room, you know, and he would have no idea what I was watching, and then he would get up in the morning, and he would say, I had this dream, and he would give, to, and he would relate to me what I recognize as quite obviously a scene from the movie, you know, a very startling mm. scene from the movie. So it's that kind of thing. Now the thing is, if he said, "I have it now," we have to, you know several different uh, 
things there that happened where I learn about this, where I didn't have to learn about this. He comes in, he says, I had a night, I had a dream. He didn't say nightmare. It was no emotional content, you know, interestingly to this one instance I'm thinking of, you know, he comes in. And so he said, he is the one, he brings it up. I had a nightmare. I could have said, uh, you know, I could have said, Oh, you know, I'm sorry, uh, whatever. And, uh, and then, you know, totally ignored it. Instead, I said, okay, what is, is your dream? What was your dream? And then he relates it to me. And so we have to go through several, you know, breaking past certain, you know, filtering uh, in order to find out, to get to what that synchronicity is. So in that particular, you know, and I think that probably happens all the time. And we just don't break past, you know, those walls to find them out. Hmm. Well, I got it. You know, hold on. I'm inspired to share uh, an actual synchronicity that I had inspired by your work, actually. Um, but I okay. haven't been able to ever tell anybody because it was just like, I guess you had to be there one of those kind of moments. So okay. I was driving down the road and I was thinking about because um, I, I like I said, I live in Denver. So I was thinking about the whole monarch, like the scene where the posters up there and you say the, the skier poster, which says ski monarch, um, looks like a minotaur. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Go ahead. No, please. Because I really think that you're onto something with this poster. Well, I know. I, I think that's something that some people have a hard time seeing. But one thing that uh, Kubrick does over and over again, it's not just with that poster. Um, do you remember the kind of poster in there that's also a, a, people try to figure out whether it's a basketball player or whatever? Okay. Uh, we end up having a matter, it's kind of like the spinning dancer thing. It's a matter of perspective dominance, uh, where you end up with several different, you have, end up with a couple of different ways of viewing something. And this goes in with also with his uh, theme from film to film, from the very first film of doubling. Um, and so uh, doubling and oppositions. And so you end up with perspective dominance as far as how you're going to see the thing. And then you can switch back and forth, too, as far as how you see it. And so I, I don't, I'm not sure, but it could be kind of there also with what I perceive as the min, kind of a minotaur-like uh, thing in that monarch. Poster. Well, the skiers, uh, well, look, I'll tell you what I did. Yeah. What, I, what I did mm-hmm. is because I lived in Denver, there's actually, yeah. uh, there's a ski location up here called Monarch. So yeah. I, I went oh, back. okay. So, yeah, so they do have things that say Ski Monarch and stuff like that. I went, I've tried. I can't find anything uh-huh. on it online or here because I want okay. to find out, like, if they really do have ski posters, I want to find out if this is really a ski poster or if, uh, or if it was a ski poster that Kubrick, are, uh, you know, intentionally designed for the movie. Um, like the and, drone poster in Lolita, which is not any, you know, which was designed for the film. And there's another one. If you take a really good look at it, it's like what's happening in this poster. It, you try to figure it out and you see that it doesn't quite make sense. What you, you know, you accept what you're seeing, but on clo- close examination, it's like the parts don't really fit together. Uh, so, I mean, I can't find anything. But when I was driving down the yeah. road thinking about all of this one day, I was thinking about what I could do to find this. I looked over, and the bus that was right next to me as I was trying to switch lanes had a sticker that somebody had sticked to the back of it that said Ski Monarch. It was a big oh, butterfly. Funny. It was hilarious. Oh, wow. yeah. It was hilarious. Uh-huh. But, I mean, I wonder. I mean, if he did it, if he did it, in, if he used a poster that was from Colorado, that's one thing. But if he did it intentionally, like, what could that mean as far as, like, the Monarch program and MK Ultra and yada, 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 which are also topics that are in his films. So it's kind of like... You know, you get the sensation that maybe he was dropping us hints about certain things that he knew about and all the conspiracies that surround him. 
But well, I don't know about that, but the first thing that would also pop to my mind is if there, as far as the monarch, is that uh, as far as linkages from film to film, is that you end up with the butterfly idea going back to Lolita um, uh, and the Bokov uh, being an expert on butterflies and um, some of the butterfly themes and you know going on there. And he Beautiful. does carry, like I said, he, he carries themes from film to film. And um, uh, anyway, I love that. That's a great synchronicity there. Thanks for coming. Oh, thank you. I'm just proud that I got to tell somebody. Like we were saying, uh -huh. that's what made me think of it. It's hard to, I mean, you say that to somebody and their eyes like literally glaze over sometimes. I mean, you mm -hmm. use it as a, a map on, you know, what I should be paying attention to or if if what, I, if what I'm thinking about happens in my external world, then I kind of like take that as a hint that I'm on to something. Um, I use yeah, it uh -huh. almost like a study guide, uh -huh. but it's hard to right. explain. I understand exactly what you're saying, because I have that happen, too, at times. And I'll get those same feelings, such as when I've written something and something pops up like it, just like just what I've written. It's like, OK, maybe I'm onto something there. Maybe I've done the right thing. Maybe I'm following the right course. It's like, the, you know, the little, you know, path through the forest that you're taking. Maybe I'm on my right, the right path. And yeah. Um, and then other times I have no idea about synchronicities where I just kind of sit there and go, mm, I have no clue what, why that's there. Yeah. <laughs> you mean like, why am I I'm repeatedly seeing this? What is this confirming? <laughs> I don't understand the, the universe and the symbol set. Yeah, where uh, uh, sometimes there's a, there's a, it, it, it does. It feels like I said, it feels like, a, you know, getting um little pointers as you walk through the path in the forest that you're on the right path. Other times, you know, there's just no, emo you know, emotional content at all. And you're just kind of like, Oh, I just, I don't get it. So whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's for somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Just, yeah. Whatever. So I'm wondering, you know, you spend a lot of time analyzing film and whatnot. How is that translated? Well, not, into I don't spend a lot of time analyzing film. Actually, well, you kind of, I spent, I, with Kubrick, yeah, I have gone through Kubrick's films. You obviously, you obviously know yeah. your stuff, though. I mean, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh -huh. How has that? How has that infected your own storytelling? I mean, how how have how you present what you write? How has it, it been influenced by I could, Kubrick? I couldn't, I couldn't because uh, I couldn't do that. My mind works completely differently. Um, synchronicity experiences have influenced my t storytelling, but um, I could not. Uh, pursue my fiction um in the same way that kubrick um does film i could not i could not do that I, we have you know completely different brain you know brains there so when you were describing that and this idea of changing perspective and um, mm -hmm. kind of manipulating perspective as you were saying yes. it made me think mm -hmm. of like gothic um and how uh in some of those stories the, the the narrator is oftentimes unreliable and you go through a situation and you don't really know what happened. You know, something happens and the next day it calls the whole thing into question. It kind of, when I say that, I think of uh, Eyes Wide Shut where, you know, did these things really happen? Was I really, you know, you know, the idea where you go back to the, the place where the thing was and there's, it's all burned down or something like this. I'm, I'm It would be funny to think of Kubrick as a kind of gothic storyteller in that sense well actually if you think of um humbert and, and lolita he's a, an unreliable storyteller isn't he um I, I think of kubrick as being more like okay uh okay let's go back to fear and desire in which um so uh, which you have a passage taken from the tempest and it's actually given it's phrased incorrectly 
uh, when it's first given and then it's given again. Uh, but you have to look at Prospero, the magician, and Prospero, he's on this island and he's uh, fabricating these experiences for everyone. And everyone thinks that uh, what they're experiencing is the truth, right? It's reality. They think, they think it's real. And he so entraps them in their experiences that Ariel finally pleads him, you know, Ariel helping him, assisting him throughout. Ariel finally pleads with him to have, you know, some mercy, basically, and release these people. Um, and, uh, so, and at the end, finally, Prospero asking the audience to release him. And I think there's something, I, I think that we need to consider that in terms of Kubrick as well, as far as the magician, the director, um, uh, creating an environment for the, uh, for the audience, um, and, and examining himself also examining the, the relationships between, uh, storytelling the stage and the audience and the breaking of the fourth wall. If you look at a lot of his films, he includes in them references to other films, other stories in which the fourth wall is broken. And so the action on the stage ends up being blended with what, you know, what is reality, uh, such as in um, the killing. Uh, Pagliacci is in the killing. And was Pagliacci where the audience sits there at the end and they think they're watching the show still, but it, sp it spills off the stage into the audience and then they find out this is reality. And take a look at um, A Clockwork Orange. And so the, those are things that I think of in terms of, of Kubrick, the storyteller, and examining you know, wh what he was doing with the audience and the story and the director, because I think he's also concerned also with not just the, with the author of the story as well. Well, then... Share with us about your your own storytelling. Uh, tell us about your, your your newest work, the rhetoric of. You know what's terrible about me is that I sit there. So I worked on a book for five years. You know, it takes me a long time to work on these, and then at the end of it, what I do is I purge it. I have to purge it in order to write something else, and I'm already starting on something else. It's been a year since I finished rhetoric, and so I've already you know so I've been in the process of purging it and getting rid of it and getting and getting rid of these characters so that I'm no longer living with these characters, and no longer you know. You know, they're, you know, no longer having them in my life, trying to build the next story. So it's, it becomes hard to talk about a book when you're doing that after, you know, after you have done that. Oh, so that's interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about your process. Are you someone that needs to write every day and, and that's the only way to stay in practice? Or do you write in spurts and you get it out and then you'll have periods of uh, non-writing time? I do it both. I'm inconsistent as far as that goes. But when I'm really writing, I'm a, I can be at it just, you know, nearly 20 hours a day. But, and, but that can also involve just a lot of sitting and figuring and waiting for just the right thing to have to, you know, to come to me. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not one of these people who has, a, who has a, oh, I go and I sit down from such and such time to such and such time, and then I do, you know, I'm not like that. I'm, and also, just because you're not sitting, if I'm not sitting at the typewriter, I mean, at the type, what am I saying? But if I'm not sitting at the keyboard, <laughs> that, does, that doesn't mean I'm not writing, right? Yeah. I mean, and Douglas, you write. Yeah. You know, um, I read your thing in the sync book. You've got, um, uh, you're always, you know, you can be always writing in your head and you're figuring things out and you're wondering, I can write something, you know, 10 times, 15 times in my head and rewrite it before I finally sit down and write it. Yeah, like an idea that marinates in there for like a year before it actually comes to fruition. 
Oh, it can marinate longer than that. I mean, uh, I mean, Thunder, As an Thunderbird. Example. Yeah, well, Thunderbird marinated a good uh, Jesus um, at least um, five years before I uh, finally began work on that. Mm. Yeah. What about your uh-huh. editing? Do you rewrite constantly? Oh, I edit. I edit. I constant. What I do is um, I do now that I I, te- I tend to be pretty consistent with this. Is that I will write up to a certain point and then I will start over again and then I will get back to that point and push forward and then I will start over again and I do this um, around up to six or eight different times where something can by the time that I get to the very end I've already written rewritten everything like six at least six times and then you have to go through and do another one or two rewrites yeah and so you're that that's my process yeah your 600 page novel turns into a monumental work, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. But I have to do that to, get, to stay connected. Um, uh, so to make sure that everything, you know, from beginning to end, I just keep, uh, yeah, keep uh, keep it connecting, keep go, going back to the beginning, beginning and, go, and again and again and ca- carrying it further, yeah. Well, if you're stewing in this work for five years... It's hard. Well, have you ever it's thrown hard. one away after after a year or so? You just decided, I, I can't do this one. I'm going to chuck it and try again. Um, or do you know, or how do you how do you like how well, do you? Well, if you sit and you, if you sit and work on an idea already for a number of years, then you you know before you even sit down with it, and you know that you're going to be writing something. That's a little bit different than just sitting down and thinking, oh, I may do something, and just starting on it, and and. And then deciding after a period of time, oh, no, this isn't going to work. I don't want to do this. But if you already have this idea, I really want to do this. I have this thing that I want to say in this book. Um, then, no, you know, that's different. Hmm. And so the actual physical act of writing is less is less the challenge than it is just to spend time in the world and to kind of feel it out, I guess, or map it. Oh, they're both challenging. Writing it is very challenging. Uh, it's just as challenging as the mapping, finding the exact right words as you're sitting there. No, and then yeah, and and re and editing and yeah. taking out what doesn't belong and all of that. That's also very challenging. Yeah. So then, tell us about this new work. What are you? What what's captivating you right now? Um, I would prefer not to talk about it. Okay, that I'm that's that's it, yeah. That's you know. Fair. No, because that's just what I do, and if you, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. If you ask me, well, what are you working on now? If it's a new work, I tend I don't talk about it to anybody. Sure. I don't even right. talk about it really with my husband. I just don't talk about it with anyone because I'm, you know, I'm letting it just kind of work on me, and I have to, you know, yeah. But I cannot, Lao Tzu, uh-huh. you know who Lao Tzu is? He has a phrase that goes, yeah. "Do your work in secret and show people the results." Mm-hmm. I think that, I think that's a powerful way of doing things. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. But well, I, I got another question for you then. If you won't go yeah. that direction, maybe you'll explain to us what's inspi- inspiring you right now then. Not necessarily what you've been working on, but what's inspiring you. Oh, what's inspiring me? That's a hard one because uh, at the same time you're asking me today at this very moment. And I have been so in such, uh, you know, the last kind of, the last two months have been really kind of, uh, it's been haywire, and so I have to kind of also extract myself from that. It's been very, uh, it's kind of, um, you know, everything that's going on around me interfering with writing process as far as uh, every day something new popping up and just going, oh, my God, what's going on now? 
So any any yeah. books or movies that you've enjoyed reading lately or watching? Oh, I, I almost you know every couple of days there's always something uh, out there that's really good. That's wonderful. Um, uh, last night, um, gosh, what is his name? The Danish director who did um, the Red Chapel. I mean, it's uh, uh, watched his movie last night. Uh, Trip to North Korea. That's a good one. And I mean, there's but there's so many good films out there. I mean, it'd be hard for me to go from film to film because you know there's always a great film, another great film to watch. Hmm. Just like there's always another great book to read. You know, who has the time for them all? Right. You know, it's kind of sad. <laughs> sad that right. way. Well, yeah. since we have a little bit of time left, I have to ask you, I'm a huge film buff, but mm-hmm. I actually, in one of your articles, I think it was on Kubrick's 2001s, you mentioned something called the Evergreen Black Cat Cinema Books. Oh, gosh, those were fantastic. Have you seen them? I had problems even Googling them. Please, what is this oh. you speak of? Okay, uh, they were books, um, you know, and I don't even have them anymore because I lent them all to somebody many years ago. But they were, uh, that is how I acquainted myself with film when I was a teenager. Uh, because, you know, I lived uh, in a place, I, you know, where they just didn't, you didn't have art cinema, you didn't have art houses. So you would have all these films and there was no place to see them, right? It's not like today. It's, you know, these, this wonderful, you know, where you can go, you know, well, of course, back, you know, you could start getting DHS and now you can just get anything online almost. It was, uh, it wasn't like that. You, you had no idea, you know, you, so you couldn't watch anything. But these books, they, instead, they were put out in books. Uh, so you had all these scenes and books. And that's how I got the, you know, so I would study the different, uh, they would have, you know, I would study the scenes and the books and it would, they would have, they would not have screenshots for every scenes, but they would have some screenshots. And so that's how, you know, perversely enough, that's how I first became acquainted with some of the great cinema out there was reading about it, you know? So, and I imagine that kind of had an effect on my first seeing it. But, um, yeah, yeah. Isn't that a little synchronistic in itself though? Like that book was kind of there for you to make you who you well, so become? Many books. They put out, uh, well, it's not just one book. There were so many books they put, you know, they would put out, um, they had books, you know, so many uh, Godard, books for, you know, Godard's films and, uh, you know, all these other films. So, you know, it wasn't just one book. There was, a, you know, it was a book for, you know, all these different movies. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And so that's, that is, that's how I introduced myself to cinema at first. And going, you know, driving to Atlanta every weekend and in order to catch, you know, the films that were going on. Do you think someone like Kubrick is a a once-in-a-generation type thing? Or will we... I just wonder about, like, those artists that are just so giant and then there's just so... There's just depths and depths and worlds and worlds in in the works themselves. Well, he's, you know, of course, he's he's great, but at the same time, I I cannot... He's different. It's just like the books are different. Yeah. I mean, he's a different kind of director, and so you've got so many other great directors out there as well. Uh, um, and that where I, you can go to different directors for different things. Um, and uh, I, I wonder, I there's at it. The, the 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 insanity of his work though creates all of these different theories and everything. I think there's like eight different mm-hmm. individuals in two, three, seven. Some some of the ideas are even conflicting. I mean, was there anybody? Mm-hmm that you see is that also does this work where you're just like, Oh, that's the kookiest thing I've ever heard. Um, I prefer not to get into that. But, um, <laughs> Good for you. You are answering all questions correctly. 
So, but um, uh, no, he is. What, what, what do you I think, think causes that, though? Let's go that direction. I mean, for do you think that that was Kubrick's intention to make some nut go crazy? Um, that should probably be rephrased because I don't want to imply that you yourself were a nut or any of the other individuals that we're talking about here. But do well, you I think it? it, I, it in, I was thinking about it more of theater, of cinema in terms of theater, of 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 people became, becoming becoming uh, drawing in a, a kind of um, Dionysian awakening. Uh, oh, so that kind of uh, uh, where you have an, where you do have a kind of. Uh, awakening process uh for for people in cinema but you know as far as what's oh gosh um i don't really know where to go from there to to something else because i've got all kinds of things in my head right now and things that i could point out that i think uh actually you know that kubrick shows that this is going on in some of his films uh such as in eyes wide shut which i think of as more as a kind of initiation process rather than divulging information or something i think you've got a kind of initiation process in, in various films as far as involving the person just like theater involves the person and theater is in, in theater is so close to ritual you know yeah mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've got you know the ritual of mass. You've got the you know religious ritual. Uh, Kubrick calls up in all his so many of his films. He calls up uh, religious holidays, Jewish holidays, all of which involve ritual. And uh, and what does and what does that do? And uh, examining it as far as the personal uh, psyche and then the collective psyche. I, and I do think that you can get into that with Kubrick. Mm. There is something ritualistic about the the cinema itself too. That you know the space and the you're with your it's a communal experience. Yeah, it used to be no longer, or it's different now. I don't think it has to be. In fact, I enjoy. It's not. I do not feel like I'm left. I've been left out of anything by watching a film on my computer, except for some. Except for some. You know, there are many films where. It's like the side, the, the screen, the, you know, you know, it's, you have to have that big screen experience that really, you know, hits you over the head, uh, where you really get the full visual and impact and the sound around you, um, everything else makes for that an immersive experience. And uh, so you don't get as much of an immersive experience now on the small screen and, you know, in your living room. Uh, but it can be in some ways a more, concentrated experience they're both well i should say they're both concentrated experiences in their own different ways mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah okay what did i okay <laughs> Tell me where... we have similar rhythms but yeah. i'm i'm taking a look at your artwork right now is what i'm doing oh um, yeah we, we haven't talked about the photography or the painting no we haven't uh-huh. i think that's a good place to uh end off our conversation so doug oh, okay. what would you what would you have to say well is how is how is that process different than your writing process do you have the same kind of eye is it is it it's it's totally well it's it's uh totally different now i wouldn't say that it was totally different when i began uh what i was doing when i was 18 19 20 years of age is quite, is very different from what i'm doing now as far as what i'm writing um, I used to be uh, uh, quite a different. The way that I wrote is very was very different back then from the uh, from the writer that I have turned into being. And so, in some ways, I 
uh, what I was writing back then had more of an affinity for the photography and the art. And um, now they're it's completely, you know, separated off processes. Um, and the writing and the art is more like it's just something I do. It's uh, I continue, you know, I used to do it. And I uh, enjoy doing it. I see something, I get an idea and I want to put it out there. And it's, and it's not as, like I said, it's not as labor intensive for me as writing a book. Uh, you can sit there, you can get a photo, you know, it's, it's just not. So I love how photographic your paintings look. Like well, it depends they, on what it is because I'm also now I'm doing digital art. I used to be, and some and that can be that can be either uh, something that it, it starts from blank, or that can be something where I have taken a if you're looking at recent stuff where I've taken a photograph and I have worked with it, so, such as like I put up over the past few days some uh, photographs that I took of a statue that you would never recognize as being the reg, original statue, which I have worked with and turned into something else. Um, so. Uh, so it's completely different, you know, as far as, uh, so it can't, it can look like, yeah. Uh-huh. But I did not, uh, you know, okay, go on. I'll say what you were going to say. <laughs> no, I was, I was looking at this one that's weather balloon tracking center. Um, the one that if you do go on the website and it's the first thing. Oh, yeah, you... that one. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. What is uh-huh. that? How, how would you do that? Well, what is that, that was is that that was taking um uh, that was uh, taking a I had we had been gone down to uh, uh, Roswell we were we were go, down um uh, we had gone to Roswell for my son he wanted to see wanted to see the museum there when he was a kid <laughs> right. and there was this there was this restaurant so I took a photograph there and then um uh, looked and then I had an idea of what I wanted to do and I found a model. And so, yes, I put them together, and then I thought, how is this going to work out? And then I painted the thing. And then I So it is paint. This is not that, digital? That is, it, no, I digitally painted it. I painted okay. it on screen. Walk-in walk okay. tablet, all of that. I painted it on screen. Yeah. Because it does, uh-huh, it does not, have the, it, it has it, the texture not, of paint. It has the texture yeah. of paint, but I didn't know if it was yeah. like an actual canvas or not. No. In fact, it's I beautiful. gave up the reason. Gave up canvas for a couple of different reasons. One, it's, they're so damn expensive. Paints are so you know damn expensive, and just didn't have room, <laughs> the room for it. You know what it is? It's expensive to be an artist. It's so expensive. Digital yeah. art solves a lot of those problems for sure. Is is there any story behind Idle Opus Press? No, that was just I had to come up with a name. I'm terrible about names. I'm terrible about you know every time I ask you know you know you're asked to come up with a name for something. I'm terrible about that. You know, it's like, okay, well, what should I do? Oh, idle opus. I'll do idle opus. Mm-hmm. And I came up with that years ago. I first came, when I first came online, it's like, okay, I'll do idle opus. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Okay, well, thank you for having me. No, no problem. You've been listening to Julie Kearns. Be sure and check out her, her work at her website, idleopuspress.com, to which we'll link. For more information about the Sync Book, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Sync Book Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You're always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Hurts to be around you.